If you would, take your Bible this morning and turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And if you're a visitor here with us today and you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. So glad that you're able to gather with us this morning. This is our last Sunday in chapter 1 of 1 John. My hope is that you've been encouraged that the text has been made clear and that the Lord, most of all, has been glorified in the revealing of Himself through His Word. We've considered a lot of things in this very brief chapter. Things that I think we far too often forget. We've considered the reality of the world in which we live and how the Bible speaks and how John speaks to the church, not in sentimental terms, trying to convince the church that the world is better than what it is, but in love of Christ being honest about the present evil in the world. He writes in chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And what we have seen in the context of this letter is that part of that evil is the false teaching that incessantly creeps into the church. Friends, some of you will probably think that knowing heresy is not that important of an endeavor for a Christian. That if we just keep our eyes on Jesus, everything will work out okay. We don't need to get into all of the argumentation and debate about what makes orthodox or right teaching from heresy. But beloved, can I tell you this? You and I are frail and weak creatures. And if you don't know what heresy is, you will probably in various ways find yourself living in it. And that's why I believe that John is writing this letter. The, the Gnostics had kind of sprang up. The, the ones who had knowledge and who knew, they, they taught that material things were bad, which flies in the face of the incarnation of, of Christ. And they ultimately would make arguments about the person of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and His atonement. There's an argument that springs up historically about whether these people, these Gnostics, were people who were in the church first and then kind of sprang up from within the church, or if they were another movement outside of the church altogether and then just kind of pressed in upon the church. And the answer is probably both. Uh, We know that in this present darkness that people will creep into the church, and we also know that the world is opposed to the truth of the Word of God concerning Jesus. What we know for sure in this text is that John is concerned most with the joy of the saints. He he has leads into what he writes to the church, assuming that they have come to receive Christ, that they understand the gospel being the reality that man has fallen and his trespasses and sins and is in the world without hope apart from the grace and kindness of Almighty God, and that these individuals have seen the glory of Christ coming in the manger and dying on the cross to make an atonement for their sin, and they place their faith in Christ's work and in Christ's work alone. But John is concerned that they will be deluded in their understanding of who Christ is and all that He has done for them, and that they will be in some measure robbed, not of their salvation, but of their joy. 
John wants every believer to understand the depth of the fellowship that he has by the merits of Christ. He wants the church to understand the holiness of God. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He wants us to know the reality of our fallen nature. Verse 6, that sin is a whole kingdom, a whole realm of darkness that outside of us there is a world that really lies in the power of the evil one. In verse 8, that sin is a regulating principle prior to our conversion that every human being is born with a fallen sinful nature, spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. And that sin is also a reality even post-conversion in our Thoughts and deeds and affections and inaction in all that we are and all that we do in verse 10. The, the, the juxtaposition here is that in God is light and there is no darkness at all, but in man is darkness. And apart from the glories of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no light at all. He places before us the reality of our desperate need for cleansing why have so many defected the church why do so many of your children and grandchildren find church to be a place only where they might be entertained and they're really not concerned with doctrine at all because they don't see their desperate need for the washing of the blood of the lamb it is through the atoning blood of christ alone john makes the argument that we have the remission of our sins, that we are washed and absolved of our sin. Verse 9 is striking in giving us a picture of that cleansing. But if, you walk, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What joy! We were at enmity with one another, but because of the goodness of Christ, we now can have fellowship with one another as we walk in the light. And the blood of Jesus, His Son cleanses us from all sin. The, the word there, cleanses, is in the present active indicative form. But it's connected to the blood of Jesus, which we all know is a historic reality which poses a problem. And I don't know that I was altogether clear last week in, in my presentation of this, so I want to just take a moment and be clear. And that, that is this reality. That though cleanses is in the present form, it's connected to a historical event, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, which gives us an understanding that this form of cleanses is a historical present. What John is doing is he is putting before us this picture of the atoning work of Christ, which is linked back to uh, uh, Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. Listen to what the Word of God records about Moses and his interaction with the people. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all of the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord has, that, that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of, Israel, of the people of Israel who, burnt, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses 
took half of the blood and put it into basins, and half of the blood and he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And I believe with everything in my being what John is doing is he is pointing to a historical event that has a present significance to every believer. And that is that you are sprinkled clean by the blood of the Lamb, His Son. And what a joy it is to know that that is a reality. The, the, the fact is that this passage is rooted and anchored in its Old Testament context. It's rooted in the reality of what God had commanded to the saints of old. And Jesus here is the fulfillment. When Jesus, I talked to a brother this week, and what a joy it was to talk about this subject and we considered in part of that conversation what it meant when Jesus hung there on the cross and He said, it is finished. Te telestai. Did that mean simply, okay, God, I'm done with my part? Did that mean simply the work of the cross in this moment for particular possible redemption is completed. No, what was meant when He said it is accomplished is that the redemption of all of those who God had set His love upon before the foundation of the world was complete. Jesus accomplished every ounce that we need for the remission of our sins. We don't add our work to what Jesus has done. John doesn't come. May God be praised forever. John doesn't come, as many modern religionists will, and heap on us a bunch of imperatives so that we might earn grace. John just heralds the reality that the blood of the Lamb has taken our sin away. Aren't you grateful for that reality this morning? We have in this one phrase the fullness of the Gospel. You see, beloved, the, 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 mm, I need to calm down a minute. We got 30 minutes to go, if we're lucky. It'd probably be longer. The, the reality is that the letters of the Bible are not written because somebody wanted to make the New York Times bestseller list. They're not written so that somebody could start a denominational movement. They are written pastorally for the joy of the saints, and most of all, for the glory of God. The letters are always written in a context of the pressure of, of, of the world around the church, the world that lies in the power of the evil one. And the pastoral intent of John is not unclear. And it is that we would know the fullness of the goodness of Christ to us. You see, what happens when there is pressure added uh, in geology is that gems form. And what is happening here as in the first century church as the pressure of a dark world presses in against a fledgling church is that gems are produced under that pressure by the Holy Spirit in these words. And I would suggest that the greatest gem of all in this letter is found in this one phrase. Hemia atos 
Yesu Huios, that is, the blood of Jesus, his son. Let us honor the word of God with that in mind as we stand to our feet and read together for the final time 1 John chapter 1 in its entirety. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. This is the Word of God to you and I today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning and we ask that You would write the truth of Your Word, the point of Your Word, upon all of our hearts, that we might worship You in spirit and in truth, and that You would receive the glory that is due Your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What John is pointing at here in this first chapter, in light of the dark world and the plethora of false teaching that abounds, and just so we're clear, the, the, the Gnosticism uh, heresy is not one that's easily nailed down because there are so many false truths in that system. That, that, that it was constantly just generating new error. And so we find it in our own day that there's a, just a, a constant knee-jerk uh, temptation for so many religious people to make errors about the Word of God and what it teaches and ultimately about who Christ is. And so the point that John is making is really quite simple. And it's not just that we would have a good doctrine of sin, though he has spoken of that clearly. It's not just that the, there would be a presentation of the holiness of God, although that has been made evident. It's not that the doctrine of the atonement would be made conspicuous, although it has been made clear. The grand doctrine that is here pointed to is Christ himself. You see, John is not just writing for the joy of the church and aiming at a theological bent. He is aiming at a person. A person who has substance and meaning. He goes on later to say that many antichrists have gone into the world in chapter 2, verse 18. There are those who have come into this world 
and who will misrepresent who Christ is and what He has done and what, how we should live in light of His work. So we must be clear in our preaching and in our teaching about who Christ is. What makes Christianity different from all the other institutions is simply this. We aren't talking about an academic system. We're not talking about a philosophical position. Uh, We aren't talking about a teaching necessarily. We are talking about a flesh and blood person. One whose blood cleanses us from our sin and makes us acceptable in the sight of a holy God. Now, incidentally, knowing that Christ is the most important reality of all of the Word of God, we have to come to this reality. The second that we start talking about Jesus, we enter into the realm of teaching and theology. This is why theology matters. Because it's not about a human institution. It is the communication of thoughts about the most important person who has ever walked the face of creation. That's why theology matters. That's why the study of God's Word matters. That's why getting the text right about who Jesus is and what He has done in His work of redemption matters. Because Jesus is not a philosophy or a theology or a thought. He is a person. Some want to just delude down the message of the gospel to a set of uplifting and kind uh, principles, a, a set of just good moral teachings, a message of goodwill. But that kind of thing, actually, it sounds good on its face, doesn't it? We all have difficulty. This week, for many of us, was probably very difficult. And we just want to be uplifted. We just want to be encouraged. We just want Jay rah rah us into thinking the world is better than what it really is. Quit reading verse 19 of chapter 5. The reality is the joy of the people of God is set before us in this text. And a, a type of teaching that reduces the Bible down to the point of the text being that you would just be a little bit better. That you would just be rah-rahed into emotional euphoria actually does great violence to the Word of God. It's not the message. It's not the Gospel. It's not what has been proclaimed by centuries of theologians, pastors, shepherds. Jesus didn't come so that we would be nice. He came that we would be restored to a holy God. That our sin would be atoned for, that it would be taken away. That is what Jesus has done. That is what all of the Bible points to. If we are not clear about who Christ is from the foundation, beloved, I promise you this, you will have nothing left to build upon. You will wind up only speaking in moral platitudes and in niceties. But you will not have anything to set before humanity that will produce lasting joy. If we are talking about mere morality, there is no good news, there is no evangel, there is no hope, there is no peace apart from the person of Christ and His work. Without Jesus, we are just sitting in the dark trying to convince ourselves that it can be tomorrow better than what it's been today. We're just optimists on our way to hell. 
Now, there are those in the body who just want to cheer everybody up. They, they, they want to practice the presence of Christianity. But Christianity is not just a disposition and a spirit. Christianity has a message, and it is a message about who the Son of God is and what it is that He has accomplished. Christianity is, in fact, Christ. It's all about Him. It's all for His glory. Everything that was made was made through Him and for Him, and it will return to Him. Christianity is the point of existence. And that is why John begins as he does. He doesn't begin with a philosophical interruption. He begins by heralding who Christ is. That which we have, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father with, with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete Paul says it this way, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all. If there is but one mediator, and there is, if there is but one propitiation, and there is, if there is but one atoning sacrifice, the atonement, one definite atonement, If there is but one that can be brought before God to restore man into fellowship with God, then we must be clear about who this one man is. Jesus, John rather, knows that false teaching is going to persist in a dark world. John knew that his time was drawing short. He's writing as an old man. And he knows that centuries of the church are going to have to endure heresy about her groom. And he wants to be clear. And so he has been. And that's why he begins just again, that which was from the beginning, eternal, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched his real flesh and blood concerning the word of life. It's why it's so important that we root our church under the authority of the apostolic word of God and not the philosophical viewpoints of men. Because the church often goes astray in one doctrine primarily that infects everything else and that is their doctrine of Christ. And so we must come not here thinking that, well, I learned everything I need to know when I was a child in Sunday school. I hope and I pray that you had a great Sunday school teacher, but I guarantee you the infinite Son of God was not captured in that classroom in His fullness. We must humble ourselves before the Word of God and ask for the kindness of God in revealing in our hearts the fullness of this gem who is Christ. You see, the reality is if we stay close to the Word of God, to the apostolic record, we will not stray far from Jesus. 
Because the apostles never strayed far from this doctrine. If you look throughout the New Testament, you will see that it all points to Jesus. And in fact, if you look throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, you will find that everything points to Jesus. Same thing happens in this chapter. It all points to this one spectacular gem found in verse 7. And that is the reality of the blood of Jesus, His Son. And so what does this phrase, the blood of Jesus, His Son, what does it teach us? What does it imply? Well, one, it reminds us that our faith is rooted in a historical reality. Jesus is a person who, person who lived. He was flesh and blood. Vera homo, vera dei. Truly God. Truly man. Many Greeks during this time, and no doubt some of the Gnostics, were consumed with philosophy and thoughts and systems. And sadly, much of what is passed as Christianity today and trite little truisms is nothing more than the trivial thoughts of men. But what we have... In these words, the blood of Jesus, His Son, is a record of a flesh and blood person, an historical individual. Now, I'm not talking about the critical system called the quest for the historical Jesus, which is nothing more than an attempt to manufacture a Christ from extra-biblical sources. It's a group of so-called theologians who come together and they, they want to understand who Jesus is apart from the Word of God. Good luck. Because part of what is taught here in the apostolic record is who Jesus actually is and what he has actually accomplished. And we should then be concerned about the facts that the Bible teach about the historical reality of who Jesus was and who he is at this moment. The historical realities are all throughout the New Testament. The reality of His birth in Bethlehem, of His going to the temple, of His growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. That the God of the heavens became an infant and a boy. And He grew up like each one of us. And then there were those three most amazing public years that are recorded in the Bible where Jesus traveled and performed miracles and He dealt with a broad range range of questions politically, theologically. He interacted with people. More more happening than really the the, uh, Bible can record. But we have the important, uh, meaningful, necessary teachings of Christ recorded in the Word of God and preserved for us. And ultimately all of that Growing culminates in him suffering in the garden and standing before Pilate and ultimately being crucified to atone for our sin. Now when this is important because our relationship uh, to Christ is, is what we experience in regard to, to Christ, we, we, we have to come to this reality. Now we, we have experience, right? We, we have Knowing Jesus and and having fellowship with Him, and that brings us joy, and that's what John is writing about. But part of what we have to reckon with is the fact that our experience are not the final proof of our faith. When someone comes to you as a believer and says, your faith is nothing more than a bunch of superstitious hogwash, 
Your faith is nothing more than your hopefulness that there is something better beyond this life. You can say, no, 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 no. My faith is not rooted in my subjective feelings. My faith is rooted in a historical person and his name is Jesus Christ. Would you like to know about him? Oh, we're not individuals and we've fallen into this so much who live upon our experiences and feelings. I think one of the most beguiling tactics of Satan is to get the church of the Lord Jesus Christ who is a historical reality in human history to live primarily upon her feelings and not primarily upon the reality of who Christ is. Edward Moat wrote that great hymn that we all remember but far too often slide away from. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. What is a frame? It is an emotional state of being. It is a feeling. And what Moat is writing there is we don't rest to uh, our faith on those frames. Now we can rejoice when the Lord in our experience brings delight and joy and good states of frames when we experience uh, deep and abiding joy in our fellowship but that's not where our faith rests our faith rests on who Christ is and what he has accomplished beloved that's a big deal Aren't you thankful this morning that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that ransoms your soul, that cleanses you from all unrighteousness, does not rest upon you? Because if it does rest upon you, you either have to be really good at lying to yourself about who you are, or you will fall into despair. But when you realize that the work of Christ is something that Christ and Christ alone did, we have all of the reason to have joy in His presence. Jesus is a historical reality. But we go on to consider, not only was He just a historical figure, He was the incarnation of God Himself. The, the, the two words here juxtaposed are so highly meaningful. Jesus, His Son. It's not that this is just any historical figure. This is the true Son of God. Now friends, I will not be able to this morning express all that these three words mean. I can't. I I can't capture all of what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. That is a failing endeavor. But what what we know by just quickly running down the list of the historical reality of Jesus' life is that these, as we read these precious and holy words, we, we say that we believe the Bible, but I think far too often we neglect the reality of its holiness, that it is other, that it is different, that what is recorded and contained here about Jesus points to the reality that He is like none other. That wasn't just some baby in a manger. It was Jesus, His Son. It's not just some kid in a temple who got lost that was truly a boy and truly God going about His Father's business. This was Jesus, 
His son. This was not just someone teaching, saying, truly, truly, I really want you to buy into my way of thinking. When he said something, they were not mere words. They were decrees of divinity. This is Jesus, his son. His healing was not that of just a religious person. It's not just one who, who is attempting to, to, to bring healing physically. This is a picture of the one who wields all of the power of the universe to restore or to cast down. This is Jesus, the Son of God. This is not just another religious martyr. This is the suffering Lamb who takes away the sins of the world in His atonement, Jesus, His Son. This is not just some individual who died on a cross in a tomb and and was left in a tomb to see destruction and decay. This is the one who is raised to new life and is at this moment seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, His Son. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of what Paul just said is wrapped up in these three words. Jesus, His Son. The baby is His Son. The humiliation of Christ and condescending to our estate and being brought in the form of man, having all of the qualities and the dignity of God, but yet resting in the appearance of of sinful flesh like you and I. Jesus didn't just have the appearance of deity, and that's part of what, what John is pushing against with the Gnostics. He has the essence of deity. He truly is the Son of God. And so we have to come to this question, what did he do? Did, did he hold on to all of those prerogatives and those rights and his power? He, he held them. He didn't set them aside. He didn't give up his right to them. But he lived his life as a man while he was still God. Jesus, his son. Vera homo, veridae, truly God and truly man. Now we can't understand the fullness of that reality, the divine nature that He's both God and man, but we can know that it is true and we can trust in Jesus, His Son. Jesus was truly divine. He came in likeness of sinful flesh, but He was completely man and completely God. He had two natures, one human and one of Holiness of being truly God. And what we have to see in the pairing of that reality in the context of these verses is this. Every one of us is born with a sinful nature. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And God is holy. And no darkness can remain in His presence. And that produces a problem. 
And what John is pointing to in this present reality is this. We have to ask the question, well, how will the two ever be reconciled if man is plunged into destruction and into sinfulness and that sinfulness can't stand in the sight of God? What will ultimately be the answer? And John's answer is emphatically Jesus, His Son, the One who truly bore the human nature and could be a representative sacrifice for all of those who would call upon His name. And He was truly God, completely holy through and through. He was born with no sin nature. Jesus his son. What meaningful words we have this, for, this morning. But let's go farther. Jesus is not only historical, he's not only incarnate, but John wants to be emphatically clear in opposition to the Gnostic heresy. They would say Jesus just took on the form of an individual, but he really was nothing more than a phantom. He really was nothing more than an apparition. He wasn't really human because in their minds, the spiritual realm cannot coexist with the material realm. And John, as he begins his work in the Gospel, makes this clear pressing back in John 1 verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and Truth. Again, these heretics were saying that God could not come in the form of humanity. And John says, you are wrong, boys. It was His blood that ultimately sprinkles us clean. We give Him our sinfulness, our unrighteousness, and imputed to our account is His righteousness. Beloved, there's no new heresy. Can I tell you that? If, if, if you are intimidated by the fact of, well, if I'm going to learn about heresies, gosh, they must just be abounding. They come in different forms, but can I tell you this? Every single heresy that has found itself in the church really manifested itself probably by the end of the first century. And then everything that happened after that were just forms of those same heresies. One of those individual heresies that often creeps into the church is something called Martianism. And Martian was an individual. He wasn't from Mars. I don't want to have another heresy creep up in the church. Uh, a Martian was an individual who said, you know, the God of the Old Testament was about sin offerings and sacrifices and this bloody atoning mess. But the God of the New Testament, He's loving and kind and He has a different disposition towards humanity. So what we really need to do is just divide the two Testaments and really only live in the New Testament. That has crept into the church of evangelical America and is alive and well. There's an individual that you probably know, you may have heard of him on uh, Christian radio, his name's Andy Stanley, and he had, he had this great idea. He said we should unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. No, brother, you should just rehitch your brain to understand every word of the Bible is about Jesus and for His glory. Amen. And Jesus, and the Old Testament is a picture, a foreshadowing of who Christ is. It will be for His people. All of the Old Testament sacrifice, the Old Testament atoning sacrifices point to the one definite atonement in Christ. All of it leads to Him. The reality is that Jesus ultimately completes every ounce 
of what the Old Testament sacrificial system requires. But these were people who rejected and didn't even see the incarnation. They rejected the virgin birth. And John says, Jesus cleanses our sin with his own blood. And now we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. It's not our blood. It's not the blood of of lambs and bulls. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. It was the Son of God who died. It was the Son of God who was born. It was the Son of God who bore the hostility of sinners. It was the Son of God that bore the wrath of Almighty God. It is the Son of God through His shedding of His blood that atones for our sins. It is the Son of God who opens the heavens and washes us and imputes to our account His positive holiness. It is the Son of God in His active obedience that has overcome our rebellion. And His sacrifice is real and actual and historical. And His sacrifice was completed through the incarnate blood. Knowing that Jesus, and this is what the writer of Hebrews is getting to all throughout, and especially in Hebrews chapter 9, Knowing that Jesus' blood is more effectual than the blood of bulls and goats and all of the rest. And knowing that He has provided a sufficient atonement that is of significant value above anything that any human being could ever say. Is it not, is it not appropriate then to understand the reality that the Spirit of Almighty God who achieved an atonement that was sufficient for all of eternity appropriates that atonement whenever He pleases. If you are in Christ today and you are under the blood of Christ, what John teaches you is that you are saved through and through. And that the whole disposition of your life should be to honor and glorify God. That you would be grateful for His grace in the shedding of His blood that you might be washed clean. Beloved, don't despair if you find yourself to be a sinner. Because I can promise you this. You have not... Trying to understand the atonement of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, however we're going to delineate that, Understanding what Jesus has done for you by the shedding of His blood with your mind is like trying to shoot a BB gun at a freight train and stop it. You cannot begin to conceive of the height of His work on your behalf. Of the potency of His atoning work. Octavius Winslow wrote, and I think rightly, the moment a believer looks at his unworthiness more than at the righteousness of Christ and and supposes that there is not sufficiency of merit in Jesus to supply the absence of all the merit in himself before God, what is it but a setting up of sinfulness and unworthiness above the infinite worth, fullness, and sufficiency of Christ's atonement and righteousness. Jesus' work on the cross is better than anything that you could throw in His direction. The question is not, is the atonement sufficient? The question is, have you run to Him for grace? 
Has he washed you clean by his blood? Now here is the reality as we go even further. Is that there is a purpose to the incarnation. A lot of people love Christmas and baby Jesus. And, and, and we should marvel at what's going on there. But then they move on throughout their life thinking of Jesus as again just this moral teacher. But the, 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 the baby Jesus in the manger has a purpose has a direction the entire historical reality of the incarnation of Christ is a means to an end it's not merely a moral indication or a moral teaching or a philosophy or a theology it's not an example that we could ever replicate or live up to the incarnation ultimately is about our redemption through the atonement of Christ that baby laying there in the manger as Mary is holding him is on his way to suffer and die and to shed His blood for you and I. He is not there to set up a system of morality and to fix the broken world. He comes in likeness of human flesh not just so that we can make our days a little bit better. He comes to make all things new. And He does that through the redemptive work of shedding of His blood, of making an atoning sacrifice. We see the reality of all of the Word of God that, that, that man fell in the garden. And then subsequently, they were cast out of the garden and sin entered humanity at our very core, at our nature. And we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We press against the words of God. We make up our own vain false religions. We do everything but submit ourselves to the holiness and goodness of God. And so God sins. You would Listen, by the time you are through Genesis chapter 3, God would be justified to wipe humanity off the face of the earth and save himself the other 65 books but he doesn't do that because he knows that his glory is going to be revealed in his plan of redemption and God sends his prophets and his patriarchs and his apostles to lead his people and he institutes a sacrificial system whereby an atonement can be made through the, the, the sacrificial system for sin and the question we have to ask this morning is this when did that sacrificial system end where did the sacrificial system end? Did it end right at the beginning of the New Testament when Jesus came into the manger? No. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Everything that is written in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Exodus about the atoning work that, G that God is providing for His people doesn't find its yes and amen in bulls and goats. It finds its yes and amen in the person and the work of Christ upon the cross. Jesus is the fulfillment of all things in the Old Testament. Don't unhitch Him from that. Jesus came for a purpose and that was to make an atoning sacrifice for all of those who would call upon His name. John 6, verses 37-39 through 39, All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me but raise it up on that last day. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. We see in the sum total of this first chapter so much about Jesus, His Son. We see the reality that God is holy. In Him is no darkness at all. 
when we see the darkness of humanity, and we are sinful and depraved by nature, that the whole system of the world is opposed to the gospel, that we act sinfully day by day, and what can be done? And all of the Bible points in the direction that this one will come into the world, that he will make a way for reconciliation. He will come incarnate, giving an atoning sacrifice, and He will be raised on the third day. And what ultimately reconciles the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man is the work of Christ. Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter 5, verses 6-8, through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. That's the whole point of the New Testament. That Jesus made an atonement. It's not some system so that your family... Beloved, if you would trace through... the, There is this type of Christianity... Oh, This is not in the notes. This is going to be... There is a type of Christianity, and I'll be done, that is being pandered, that says Jesus came so that we can have perfect little families. Jesus came so that we could have all the things we want. Jesus came, and what you find out is that as people write the reasons that Jesus came, you find out whether or not they're really worshiping the one true Jesus who made an atoning sacrifice, or whether or not they are, they are bending Jesus to their idols. All throughout uh, church history, you will find that as people were martyred, they were martyred before their children. Talk about leaving a legacy that our, our little family wouldn't be disturbed. Uh, all throughout church history, we see suffering from saints. We see agony and pain. But we see something greater in the face of all of that. And that is real lasting and eternal joy because the saints of God have understood that the blood of Jesus doesn't merely cover their sin for a time, but removes it for all time. And that they will have fellowship with God eternally. Jesus has died for us. May God be glorified forever because of the work of his son and might we speak about Jesus in terms that are rooted historically that are accurate and true and not just rooted in feeling beloved I have a challenge for our church that we never talk about our conception of doctrine as it relates to the person of Christ knowing that he is so important in terms of well this is how I feel about it let us always be led back to the text to the historical reality of who Jesus actually is would you pray with me father God thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives thank you for the weight of your word. Thank you for the breadth of what scripture teaches that you are constantly pointing us in the direction of Jesus. 
That, Father, we know that we are sinful and we we don't need to come and stiffen our neck and pretend like we've got everything together because we don't. Father, give us grace to be humble theologically and to always be willing to work through the hard parts of, 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 of things that might escape our minds. Father, help us to be individuals who herald not a Jesus, but the Jesus. Might we herald the reality that Your Son came in human flesh and that He atoned for sin once for all, and that He's now seated at Your right hand, that all who call upon Him will be saved. Father, might we speak of Christ in terms of affection, with reverence and awe for what You have done through Him. Jesus is not a prop that we might get what we want. He is Your Son that You might receive glory on high forever in eternity. May it ever be true that You use our church in that direction. In Christ's name.